and welcome back to Hey Look Listen. My name is Liam Sheehan. I'm joined here for the third time by my friend Kevin O'Carroll. Kev, thanks for jumping in for a third time, man. Absolutely no problem, dude. Delighted to be here. You, I, I grant you the rank of Hey Look Ooh. now that you've done three episodes. One day I'll earn the coveted listen. <laughs> one day, man. One day. But no, but seriously, got to keep this podcast chugging along. I really appreciate you jumping in and giving me a hand. No problem, dude. Like I said, anytime. Anytime. Like well, I mean, in the middle of the night and I'm drunk. Would that be okay? And I just call <laughs> you up. I'm like, hey, we got to talk about Crash 2. I mean, probably, yeah, to be honest. I didn't that. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's do that sometime. But we're not talking about Crash Bandicoot 2 today. And like, now that I've said it out loud, why haven't we done a fucking Crash episode yet? You know, he's just sitting there. He's the most 90s of characters. We'll get, we'll get there someday. But we're talking about uh, a couple of indie games today. Aren't we? We're going, we're going all arty farty indie today. Yes, indeed. We're um, discussing the oeuvre of uh, <laughs> legendary indie developer Lucas Pope. Lucas Pope. And so as far as indie games go, these will be two of the more high profile ones. But uh, I was going to like begin this by saying, you know, these are like the two games by auteur indie developer Lucas Pope. But I actually don't think there is only two games, but they're definitely his main ones. Why don't we begin by talking about the guy for a second? Because he's... Yeah. Like, I think a genius game designer, like just judging by the two games we're talking about, he, he, he works alone. Am I correct in that? Primarily, yeah. Um, I believe for some of the projects before these two, he worked with his wife. I think the two of them Aww. worked on things together for a bit. But I believe the two games we're talking about today are like entirely solo projects. Yeah, and like one of his like kind of... Um, big um, footholds into the industry he worked um for naughty dog for a little bit i believe he worked yeah. on uncharted 1 and uncharted 2 doing like a graphic user interface like menus and stuff yeah yeah which is super interesting what an interesting kind of place to start and he i remember reading an interview with him because the great thing about uh, you know talking about lucas pope and lucas pope games is that he is so open with you know his you know talking about his development times on the internet and you know his designing games and stuff like that so there's like tons of like lucas pope uh, interviews out there but I remember him yeah. saying how there was no infrastructure at Naughty Dog when he started there for for this thing for like graphic user interfaces, which is kind. Of, it's not something you think about as a game fan sometimes, but it's a thing that you know it's super important for the player to have a good user interface when they're playing a game. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. Like I mean, it, it is at the end of the day how the player interacts with the game. Like and a lot of games can get past having bad or janky UIs if they're good enough, but they need to be great like you look at like dark souls has survived having an awful ui because the game is great but um it's other things that aren't quite to that standard good luck uh, but i just think it's, it's interesting that he like a, a game as new i know it's super old now but as new in the in the industry as uncharted one was that kind of there wouldn't be a kind of a designated division for that kind of thing and he was kind of you know not saying he was exactly on the forefront of it but he was just saying when he got that job it wasn't the thing i just I'm bringing it up it has nothing to do with the games we're talking about. I just think he's like yeah. a super interesting guy, and he tends to have these really interesting perspectives on the industry. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, like I said, there's plenty of interviews around him, around of him, and um, I don't know if this is something that I'm remembering or something that I made up, but I believe his, he got his start originally making like mods for Quake. Yes, yes, I remember that as well. Yeah, yeah, which is like the the most '90s game design background I can think of. Yeah, I, I love I, I love when you hear kind of stuff like that, though. You kind of, oh, this this guy made mods for Quake, and now he's like one of the most interesting game developers of all time. I remember I used to hang around in Newgrounds.com back in the 2000s. I used to watch these, um, you know, just animated, you know, an, animated shorts and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, a lot, of it was, a lot of them was my kind of first uh, exposure to like video game humor, you know? Like there was no one on, you know, TV making video game humor back then, you know, about nerd culture. And there was this kind of these shit animated videos. Like, you know, they are shit, but, you know, fair play to the guys for making them. And I was just, I mean, recently enough, I was like, got reminded of them. And I was like, oh, remember those things that they were kind of, I can't remember what they're called, Kev, but they're kind of about just three gamer lads and they get into all these hijinks. They go to E3 and they made Hideo Kojima and stuff like that. And like, I was reading about them recently and they fucking made snipper clips for oh, the, for the really? Switch. Yeah. I, lo- I love that game. That's fantastic. Yeah. They make like they like made one of the major Switch launch games, and I was just so like, oh my god, like humble beginnings. That's unreal. Is that your your roadmap for the future of this podcast? So, <laughs> what will I be making in ten years? Uh, a mess, probably. I'll be making stool with blood on it. 
<laughs> no, but that's perfect time to move on. Uh, I was I, like, like I said to, to completely like um, loop back around. I thought um, our first game, Papers Please, was his very first game that he made. But what would you know what he made before this? Yeah, so I. Uh... I believe that after he was working in Naughty Dog, he um, moved to Japan with his wife to be closer to her family mm-hmm. um, and sort of started working on sort of smaller, more experimental games. Uh, he had a couple of releases on uh, iOS, a couple of mobile games. He had one that was like a, a free release on Steam that I can't remember the name of. I didn't write it down in my notes. Um, he made a couple of like Flash games and things, but... Um, the one that kind of came to prominence was immediately before Papers, Please. He made a thing called The Republia Times. It's actually set in the same universe as Papers, Please. Republia is one of the, the countries that shows up in it. Um, and it's a game in which you're, you you play as the editor of the national newspaper in this like um, fictional dictatorship. And the way it works is you have like your, your news desk and new headlines will like scroll in from a feed. And you have to decide which ones to put on the front page of the paper. And you pick like how large the articles should be, and the idea is that you're trying to like sway public opinion in favor of the dictator. That is absolutely Dude. brilliant. That sounds yeah. like fascinating, and that is so emblematic of the man's work. To be honest, I, I kind of really want to play that now. Yeah, well, that's the the interesting thing is that it's actually um, I was playing it earlier today. It is available free to play on his own website. Just uh, lucaspop.com. Uh, I think it's forward like- slash free game, please. Yeah, Google that, you'll find it. You'll get there. <laughs> but just um, for the scope, that sounds brilliant. That sounds like absolutely fascinating. But just for the scope of, of uh, this um, episode, we're talking about his major two um, releases. And we'll begin by talking about Papers, Please, which came out in uh, 2013, I believe. And I remember, Kev, when this game came out, I took a couple of years to play it. But I just remember that year when it came out, it was like talked about so much. It was so lauded. Like for an indie game, you know, it happens every now and then. It happens like with the likes of Braid or whatever. Just an indie game kind of just sets the kind of industry on fire. And I just remember everyone talking about Papers, Please. And I was just so fascinated by it before I ever got to play it. Yeah, it was one of those things that was like immediately like got a ton of, of critical acclaim. But also, I think sold really well. I think it was, it was a very popular game. Yeah, like with the general population as well as a critical darling. But it was just so immediately fascinating. I remember reading about it, and like, like just like that that newspaper game you described it, like his first game. Like I'd never heard of that game, and when you were like talking about it, I was actually just like, what a like a novel, brilliant idea for a game, and that kind of. You know, I, I can imagine I can imagine that newspaper game mechanically as you were describing it, but I can also imagine how like the mechanics can be, you know, an avenue to something very human. You know, yeah, definitely. And it being a Lucas Pope game, you know, there's slightly more twists and turns to it as well, where a rebel faction try to contact you through your news feed, and then you have to decide, you know, whether you want to display stories that are going to support or, or help to take down the government. Um, it is such a, it's such a succinct precursor to Papers, Please, though. Absolutely, yeah. I think it was definitely the sort of the, the progenitors or the seed of the idea that went on to become Papers, Please. Like the Republic of Times, I think, plays in about 10 minutes or so. Oh, Whereas right. Pa- I should play yeah. it after this episode. I should, do you know what? In 10 minutes, I should have played it before the episode. <laughs> would, I, you know, if I cared about my craft. <laughs> yeah. I probably should have told you about it before we were recording. <laughs> no, I should not. No, I should have known about it. There's no excuse. But since, yeah. since you so elegantly... Um, Describe that newspaper game, Kev, Republican Times. Do you want to um, throw out what the premise of Papers, Please is? Yeah, sure. So Papers, Please is, um, it's set in like the early 80s in a fictional country called Aristotska. Um, it's kind of a, a stand-in for like the Cold War USSR. Um, it's set specifically in this town called uh, Greston, which is a, the town is kind of divided down the middle by a national border, kind of like Soviet-era Berlin. Um, and you play as an immigration official working at the first uh, checkpoint to open in this border in the middle of the town, sort of a, a checkpoint Charlie style border checkpoint thing. It's a checkpoint lot. Sounds weird. Now. It is a checkpoint game. That's what it's it's checkpoint. the checkpoint game. So the kind of the basic gameplay loop of it is that you kind of your workday is on a timer. Uh, you hit the button. Uh, the speaker says next. Someone walks in, and you ask them for their papers, please. 
so they will give you their 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 documentation to try and come into the country that have like their passport or work permits or whatever. And your job is to sort of review the documentation, check for inconsistencies or differences, and then ultimately stamp to approve or deny their entry, give them back their docs, hit the button, call the next person. So it's work. It is work, the video game, isn't it? It's, yeah. one, it's one of those games sometimes. I remember playing it like one time and just being kind of like, I am also working. You know, why am I playing this video game? Um, that That's like an, an, a different job. Yeah, and especially because like at the end of each in-game day, then you get paid depend- based on how many uh, people you'd seen during the day. And then you have to play this sort of little budget mini game where you decide how to spend your money on like yeah. things like rent, food, heat, like medicine for your sick kids. Yeah, I haven't played a lot of Mario Party mini games where you know you see a marker that denotes how sick your children are or anything like that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess many... mini game is the right word though. Yeah, I don't remember the WarioWare game where you have to decide whether you get to feed or heat your house. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I usually like grandma die. You know, that's the, that's, yeah. the, that's the easiest way to do it. Well, listen, she had a good run. <laughs> but it's 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 fascinating. In terms of that, have you ever played uh, Trauma Center for the DS? I think it's on different consoles. No, as well. so I haven't actually. Have you ever played something like Cooking Mama? Again, no, but I know. I'm just it. jumping towards like out of nowhere. I'm just like heel turning right into like wacky uh, Japanese games, but they are just kind of memorizing patterns. They're mm-hmm. kind of like you know, if you're playing Trauma Center, and a person you know, you got to use a stitcher for this part. You got to use you know the anesthetic for this part, and you're just kind of memorizing kind of actions under um under duress you know under a timer that's kind of what papers please is you know you you learn all you all the, like, as you go on there's more things you need to do you need to check different documents you need to check passports you need to remember yeah. what exactly to check on passport you need to check their nationality you need to check the, if the face matches the face and you're just kind of you know m- trying to create muscle memory with things and and like the more kind of it gets the, the the further on the game goes, you have the more responsibilities you have, things you have to check, and it gets like it turns into a real clusterfuck because of the the sort of spreadsheet accounting budgeting mini game at the end of every day where you have to try and keep your family alive. You're incentivized during the the, the passport checking bit to go as fast as you can, yeah, to get as many people done as possible. And I think but, that might be the the real genius at the core of the game. It's, yeah, because it, obviously it, it, it is it, it's spurring you to work as efficiently and. You know, not even sorry, not even as efficiently. It's spurring you to work as fast as possible. Yeah, because then when you make mistakes, yeah, you end up incurring penalties and you know have money taken back off you. So there's this sort of tension or tug of war between you want to go as fast as possible to earn as much money as possible, but the faster you go, the more likely you make a mistake. Especially when, like as you said, the game kind of ramps up the the cognitive load as it goes. There's more things you need to think about, and it also has this sort of dexterity element to it as well where you have like a finite space yeah on your on your desk in. on the screen or slash your desk yeah exactly i remember replaying the game at the second time i played it and that was that was the part of it i didn't remember as well just even at the beginning when i wasn't sure of i couldn't remember the mechanics i, I was just like filling my desk with like tutorials to yeah. try to remember how to do things and that's such a good indicator of, of things to come where your desk space is a problem. It's going to be a huge problem going forward. And I think that's just so clever. It's so simple. As the complexity of the task is being ratcheted up as well, your living costs will go up over time too. <laughs> like your rent goes up or like I said, your son gets sick and you need to buy medicine for him. Um, so you get these constantly like increasing stakes with the demands of what to spend your money on. And then the way to earn the money is becoming increasingly more complicated. And then the downsides of getting it wrong is becoming increasingly more yeah. severe as well. So it's like this ba- balancing act, but also juggling, and also you're juggling knives, and also someone's pushing you, and they have a rush <laughs> act. <laughs> and the in, the um, increased mechanics that are thrown on you perfectly kind of represent the kind of, you can almost feel um, the country becoming more uh, sinister, more foreboding, more yeah. you know locked down or whatever. And it's just elegant um game design elegant narrative being told through the gameplay absolutely yeah it's kind of as new rules are introduced or new things that you have to check there's always uh, a narrative reason for it yeah like without wanting to get into too much of spoilers and things for the game there is like an ongoing narrative through it of like a resistance story yeah. about a, a rebel faction trying to oppose the government and trying to drag your character into it. It's a story that you can engage with or completely ignore. 
Yeah, um, and you could ignore ignore it because you know you're trying to you know work as uh, work as 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 well as possible, and you might miss it. Or you could ignore it because you don't want to fuck up your job. It's super interesting. You got to make these really yeah. difficult choices, and they feel really difficult. Yeah, so it's kind of like at the same time that the game is trying to pull you back and forth between being fast and being accurate, it's also like doing this thing where it's pulling you back and forth between like what is the moral choice and what is the lawful yeah. choice. So every every well, the, the actual actions you're taking is just looking at documents and then stamping yes or no. The actions are sort of simple, but the, every decision is like really meaningful. And then it's also every decision is stacked against the clock as well. So you're constantly just moving and thinking and going second guessing yourself. It's it's um a brilliant it's one of, if not the greatest examples I can think of of, like you said, a kind of um video games kind of challenging your morality. And and <clears throat> and in ways that are kind of way more interesting than the way that video games usually do it, as in, you know, in Bioshock, do you kill the little sister or do you let her live? In 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 Mass Effect, do you choose the red option or the blue option? You know, are you bad yeah. or are you good? It's just so much more complex, and it's interesting. I always I, I said it when we were talking about Persona. You know how Persona rang kind of. I, I felt proud of a character. You know, I, mm-hmm. I you know in that game, and that's an interesting emotion to, for a piece of media to to take out of you. And Papers, Please, I think, is has another one that's like super fascinating for um, and kind of unique to video games. It makes you feel super guilty. Yeah, absolutely. As it goes on, you know, you can, when you find differences or discrepancies in someone's documents, you can kind of click a button to interrogate them and ask them about it. And then people will start telling you like little bits about their lives, what they're yeah. trying to get away from. And then you have to make the choice. Do you stamp them and let them in and take the penalty and maybe you can't afford food for your family? Or do you turn them away and send them back to some horror? You know. Yeah, and it's and and it's it's really amazing how well it's how well that's conveyed because the graphics is quite simplistic. I'm not. I mean that uh, usually um, complimentary way. The, gla- the graphics uh, needed to be clean and kind of uh, clear in this game because you know yeah. that's important. But in terms of the art style, it's very pixelated and there's no voice acting, obviously, and the characters' faces are very kind of crude, but they're human enough. So even like 10 minutes into that game, I found I was just making like these difficult decisions where I didn't want to like, turn this lady away, but, yeah, but you know, I need to, I need, you know, I need to get enough money to, you know, feed my family and get medicine. But at the same time as well, I was so susceptible to being lied to. And it kind of genuinely yeah. made me kind of reflect on myself and what I would be like in a, maybe a, a more higher stakes job than I've ever had in my life. You know, I definitely think in my, in my time in customer service, I definitely think, I've gotten duped by liars, you know, customers who are just trying to get one over on you and stuff like that. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I I like seeing the best in people in kind of completely, you know, irrelevant situations like that, where it doesn't really matter in the long run. I don't really think it's a failing of me. Being tricked isn't a failing, but the setting of Papers, Please is so oppressive. You feel it. It it emanates from the game. And you're kind of like, I don't want to kind of, you know, I want to let this lady through, even though she doesn't have the right documents. You know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to kind of send her back. And but then when someone tricks you, it just feels so bad. And you, then you don't have the money for, <laughs> for your kids yeah. and your family. And it's just brilliant. There's so many things being juggled. Yeah. And um, there's like 20 different endings to it as well. As far as Yeah. I, I think I've only ever gotten one. I've, I've played it the whole way through twice. And I think I've gotten like arguably like the worst possible ending both times. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's it's fascinating that like a game that is mechanically, like mechanically, just do you stamp yes or do you stamp no? The like the the decision space, everything around that is so complex and interesting. That yeah. It, but yeah, it just boils down to this simple like yes or no question, you know? It's it's the kind of stuff that makes me like genuinely just like excited about game design. Yeah, you know, we, can uh, I make a, can I make a little confession though? Yeah, I love you're being recorded, you know that, yeah. No, oh. scratch that. No. <laughs> I don't like playing it. Well, see, that's the thing. I so it was actually one of the things I wanted to talk about as well. You know, yeah, Kev, Kev, here's a here's a here's a big question. It, you know, does art need to be fun? There's a wanky question for you. Do you know what I mean? No, do video games need doesn't. to be do video games are, is is a video game a failure if it's not fun or if it if it's 
saying something or if it's making you feel something, maybe something else, is, is that an achievement? It's, it's an interesting quandary, wouldn't you say? Like I said, I respect the hell out of the game. I can completely understand why people would love it. I just find the act of playing is too tense. Yeah, I know I'm saying that, yeah, I know I'm saying that like the game that is expressly designed to make you feel <laughs> tense is too tense. I don't say that as a failure of the design. Yeah. It's just not it's not how I want to spend my free time, you know. Yeah, for a relatively short enough game, it's quite hard to sit down and qu- and kind of play it for a while, isn't it? Cuz it's just stressful. It's constantly stressful. It's not a relaxing game. No, not not at all. But I like, yeah, like I said, I yeah, like and like we both said, it's not a failing of the game. It's just a matter of fact. And I do think it would be better for the industry as a whole if you know. I'm not. My my position is games shouldn't be fun. You know, <laughs> you know, games yeah. definitely should be. <laughs> I've just yeah. caught myself for I said something there. You know, yeah. But I just think if you take chances in in things like this, if you if you try to like make something that's about something very particular, and maybe try to wring different feelings out of people, you can get genuinely audacious, fascinating video games. Yeah, absolutely, and it is like I'm really glad that I have played it. I'm fascinated <laughs> by it. I love talking about it. Um, I played it again in the run up to this recording session to make sure it was fresh in my mind. Yeah, and I don't think I'll ever play it again. Yeah, I don't know, man. I have a feeling, like, you give, give it a couple of years, I bet you'll get that itch, because it's just so, I don't know, it's so unique, it's so singular, and it's just so kind of yeah. fascinating. I I didn't play it when it came out, but I, I I was the same. When I played it once, I was like, that's probably enough of that. But I don't know, the, the itch just came up again to kind of revisit that weird yeah. little experiment of a game. Yeah, I think one issue I had maybe that is sort of unique to the version I played is that I played it on the PlayStation Vita. Oh, God, I didn't even know um, it was on that. Yeah, yeah. I played it on the Vita, and obviously the screen layout is different on the Vita, and you're using the, the touch screen to kind of drag things around. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit awkward and a little bit janky, which when you stack that on top of the fact that the game is already supposed to be, you know, yeah, this sort oh, of I, I can mess. kind of. I'm a, I'm a hardcore console gamer kid. I want my analog sticks and my buttons, and I want Nintendo. But no, I can't imagine playing um, Papers, Please without a mouse, man. Yeah, yeah, it was nightmare. Tough you, I know that the Vita has a touchscreen, but no, no, you think, I think this is a game that's kind of designed for, the, for a mouse, because for you, you're literally dragging things around. Oh, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. That must have made it so much worse. Imagine if the person working at the checkpoint in real life had to do all his work on the PlayStation Vita. Yeah, at least someone would be getting use out of a PS Vita, though. Oh, take that, Vita. No, I love the Vita. I think it was horrifically undersold and misrepresented by Sony. Uh, and now it's dead. This and seems like the dead. perfect time to move on to the second game you want to talk about, which was Lucas Pope's follow-up from Paper mm-hmm. Please. It came out five years after. He just... Very... Uh, no rush. Like He was just like, I'm just going to work on the next game, and when it's ready, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll release it. it. It's it's amazing that he got into such a comfortable position within an industry that's you know famously so difficult to get yeah. into comfortable positions in. You know, yeah. Um, I believe with Oberdin, he had actually planned to release it much sooner after Papers Please. Right. He had announced it before Papers Please released, and had a playable demo at a uh, at GDC 2016. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then sort of the more he kind of dug down into the idea of it the more he's like there's something cool here i'm going to take my time with this and i'm really fucking glad he oh, did because yeah. Re- it is return of the, yeah return of the Oberdin kev is i'm not saying it's a perfect game but i i think it's difficult for me to love a video I'll game say more it if you want it, it's it's close to perfect in execution and everything but it's genuinely just one of my absolute favorite games of all time i love it and you know Outside the podcast, you and I have talked about this game many times because I, I know you yeah. love it too. But yeah, man, do you know what? I've kind of it, like accidentally. I didn't go in. I didn't go in with this plan. But I don't know. You're the game explaining guy this episode. I'm just gonna. <laughs> th- I'm just gonna throw it at you again. You've, you've done. You've done a job. Good, great job twice. So why not? Like why not? Okay, we'll go for three out of three. <laughs> so yeah. So in Republic of Times, you play as a newspaper editor. Yes. And in Papers, Please, you play as an immigration official. What exciting so, job you play as in Return of the Oprah Din, Kev. I set you up. 
even though you're setting yourself up. The absolute rock star position of all time. You play as a 19th century insurance inspector. Yes, finally. Yeah, you, you can just edit in the air horns there after that. <laughs> um, so basically, in the game, there's this ship, the Oberdin, that set off from London uh, in like the early 1800s with a crew and passengers of like 60 people on board. Uh, ship went missing, um, never heard of again for five years uh, until it drifts back into English waters with like no one left on board. Um, And you are a rep of like the East India company um, who have insured the vessel. You're sent on board to kind of determine what happened basically. Um, So to do this, you're armed with, you have uh, a manifest of the ships. You have the full list of names, nationalities, and like job titles for everyone on board. You have a labeled map of the ship, all the rooms. You have a painting of like all of the crew on two paintings. the deck. Uh, two paintings, my apologies, yeah. of the, the crew. So you can see what they all look like. And most importantly, you have a magic, I want to say compass stopwatch, I'm not sure, um, that basically allows you, when you use it next to a corpse, you can see the final moments of that person's life, specifically the, the moment of their death. So all very realistic until the magical stopwatch. Until the last, yeah. Yeah. But you know, sometimes you know when you're designing a game, you you know, and you need to make a game mechanic. <laughs> if it's too difficult to make it realistic, just don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you you use these tools to kind of explore the ship. Um, you find corpses. You have a look at the, the moment that they died, and you kind of use these little vignettes, little moments to kind of piece together sort of three pieces of information for each of the, the 60 passengers on the manifest. You want to know who they are, what happened to them, and who did it to them, basically. Yeah, for 50 souls, you need to find those those things. You know, who what, who they are, put a, put a face to the name and how they died. And, and what, yeah, it's so good, Kev. <laughs> you just explained it there. It sounds, <laughs> I can imagine it sounding sort of, you know, mundane. But for me, you haven't played it. You describing it there again, I was just like, oh man, I wish I didn't know any of those 50 men and women. I wish I didn't know anyone. But now that I've like yeah. finished the game, I'll never get that yeah. first time of figuring it out again. Yeah, it is. It's it's brilliant. The game is like, it's just deduction, the video game. Yeah. It's so, like, dist- I, I, distilled working stuff out. I don't have, I, I, I can't admit to kind of having played like every game in, in that genre. But for me, it's the best kind of deduction game I've ever played in terms of, you know, I, I love puzzles games. I love games where you're figuring things out. But in terms of actually yeah. giving you things to deduce and the ways you can deduce them, I think this is the best example I've personally ever played anyway. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the detective game is a much maligned genre. A lot of people have tried to do it and no one or very few people have done it sort of well or effectively. You look at things like um, L.A. Noire, you know, yeah, which is a good game. I do. I, I like I, this. I'm all about LA Noir. Yeah, but as far as a detective game goes, you're not really working stuff out. You're more just kind of picking the correct dialogue option at the right time. Yeah, and on the other end of that, like you have like the Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney games, which yeah. I'm like a huge fan of. And I'll, but but I'll admit that they're more like kind of cartoony kind of books that stop every now and then and go figure out this puzzle why this person is lying figure out how it's not a, an organic uh, detective uh, kind of thing you know and i'm not that's not a slide against the ace attorney games that's not a slide against la noir those games you know for what they do they work well enough but it's just that lucas pope definitely kind of sat back and you know thought about this genre and thought about like an uh, absolutely fascinating way to do it yeah one game i suppose i would compare it favorably to is um board game uh sherlock holmes consulting detective well we you know if next time i call you in for hey look listen you know maybe we should do it because we've played that before we have <laughs> one of the most fantastic. intense board games i've ever played if anyone wants a fucking evening in when you're look, looking literally rifling through fake newspapers <laughs> to find yeah. clues <laughs> yeah you have, you have a directory of entirety of victorian london and can like go and talk to every single person <laughs> and try and f- figure out who done it that was actually um, rad, actually. The only problem with you and I playing that game is that we did like, hey, you know, we're hanging out for the evening. Let's drink. Yeah. And, you know, by hour five, I think I might have been drinking vodka even. Just absolutely yeah. two langers <laughs> to fucking solve Sherlock Holmes puzzles. 
yeah, nowadays I, I play it with uh, with Sarah, my partner, and we will like maybe have a bottle of wine. Yeah, between us because we went like way too hard. <laughs> you can you can be Sherlock Holmes if you're if you're really drunk, but you can be. But it, you're right though; it's it's very similar to uh, Oberdin, and I think one of the the things you got to talk about before we go into more details about it is is the art style. Yes, because he wanted to make it look like it was like made on a what like a ZX Spectrum or something. Yeah, one of the old uh, Macintoshes, the old sort of one bit. Yeah, you just you just have like that sort of monochrome black and white effect. So yeah, it's really distinct uh, black and white kind of, uh, and I believe that was one of the first germs that led to this game. Is that he just it's just that he wanted to make a game that looked like it was um, made on one of those old computers, right? Yeah, yeah, and like it's a really simple, like I said, one bit art style, but then it's sort of rendered out into these like absolutely beautiful like 3d vistas because you're it's there's no animations you're only ever seeing these like these mom- these death moments as like frozen scenes that you can then move about in interact everything paintings or something yeah exactly exactly yeah, yeah. it's it just rendered beautifully but it gives it, it gives the game it's like completely unique style and what you're doing basically is you're basically just trudging around an old boat aren't you and anytime yeah. you anytime you come to a, a corpse, you you take out your magic watch and it transports you back to the moment of that person's death, and you're piecing together the story of what happened to everyone on board the ship, what happened to the Oberdin, like we we're talking about. And this is, you know, we're, we're gonna spoil it a little bit, but I'm not gonna spoil it too much. This is a good old classic, just pirate ghost story, almost. You know what? It's not that, but that's enough of a <laughs> no. clue. You know? Yeah. Yeah. If some supernatural shenanigans went on board when it went down on the Oberdin. Yeah. And yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating and it's like really cool, for lack of a better word. It is, yeah. Because you're 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 finding these corpses in whatever order, and you know, there's kind of a tutorial kind of segment at the beginning where the game kind of funnels you from one corpse to the next, one corpse to yeah. the next. But after that, you're kind of you know, the doors are locked for times aboard the Oberdin, so the game does continue to funnel you through kind of segments of the ship before it opens up entirely, so you won't get too bogged down, won't get too lost immediately. But for, for a lot of the game, you are kind of wandering around in your own accord, so you're going to kind of, one player would piece together deaths and the story in different orders from another player. So that's like the fun of the game is you have, you, in your book, you have 10 empty chapters. You know the backstory of the Oberdin is split into 10 chapters, but you might start at the end, you might start in the middle, you're going to start figuring out how all these things link and what really happened and the order of things. Yeah, and, and piecing that together is sort of central to the whole the whole gameplay mystery of it. Then you kind of, you might see a vignette of something at the end where you see a guy with a moustache die and then you see that guy in a different vignette that happened maybe earlier in the trip yeah. And you see him, I don't know, he's hanging out in the, the first mate's quarters. You go, oh, well, if he's the first mate and he's wearing the same uniform as this guy, then maybe he's also one of the, oh, the but mates. You kind of... All bets are off in the ways that you're allowed to figure things out in this game. Yeah. Uh, like, you're, you, like, the things you have to observe, like, not even have to, but the things you can observe, like, um, like you said, who, who's wearing what uniform? Who's standing where at certain times? Uh, mm-hmm. Relate when pe- anyone says anyone's name in one of the in one of the because when you go back to these little uh, vignettes with the moment of these people's death, you always get a little audio as well of people talking just before they died, so you can hear names. But like anything like people's accents was a huge one that helped me. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's one Irish guy on the ship, and do you know what's more amazing as well? And I'm like, you know. I mean this in like the nicest way possible, but there's one Irish guy marked on the ship, but you can see it on the manifest. So I was just like, yeah. there's one Irish guy. But, I, but even before I, you know, you know, knew exactly what his death was, I looked at the photo, and the way he's drawn, I was actually just like, look at that Irish head in him. <laughs> That's the Irish guy. Yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> and it was. He's the butcher. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> the Irish. Oh no, that's not a spoiler. You know that, don't you? Yeah, you know no, that. That's no. on, the, on the manifest. Yeah. Yeah, you just need to figure out how he died. Yeah, but but that but you know, there's there's a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of kind of okay, these are the um this this guy's wearing a turban, like who, who what what are the nationalities of the people on board, just stuff like that. Like yeah. all bets are off. And 
like the, the amount of ways you can figure things out that are kind of outside the game is completely viable. I remember um, taking out my phone and I'd like, and just as, as to digress for a moment, if there's any game I would say, do not take out your phone and look up a walkthrough. It's this one. No matter how long it ta- it's taking you to figure out, no matter how bogged down you feel, don't spoil it for yourself because once you're done, you know, you'll never get to solve this puzzle again. But yeah, I, did take, I did take out my phone and look up certain tattoos from a certain culture because I just okay. wanted to see, you know, I was like, is this, and I was like, oh, okay, okay, that guy, had, okay, I know who this is yeah. now, you know? Yeah. It's, um, I completely agree with, with the, the one you just made there as well, is that like absolutely do not look up anything for it because in, in this game more than any other, like figuring it out is the game. Yeah. You're, and, you're not look. You're not looking up how to play the game. You're looking up the game, you know. Yeah, and just kind of peaks and valleys in this game of kind of, you know, you will find you will hit dead ends where you're like, I think, like you'll be certain that you figured out everything you could possibly figure out. Yeah. Just wandering around the ship, but then when you you know, there's then there's the highs, like the exhilarating highs of when you your brain just links onto a nuclear. You're like, hold on a second, I got that. Yeah. Or you notice something different, and. The Oprah Din is not the hugest space in a game you'll ever have to explore, but it is big enough. And the game never gives you an opportunity to like fast travel or warp. So it actually, yeah. the further you get into the game, the kind of harder and perhaps more tedious it gets to kind of explore the ship because, you know, to revisit um, the moment of a person's death, you need to return to where their corpse is. And sometimes when you're watching that person's death, you can find another corpse in the memory of that person's death. So you're going back again. Yeah, you know, so you're kind of you know, inceptioning this thing, you know, and you're going back. So when you when you have the whole kind of boat open to you, the whole ship open to you, it can be a bit kind of you know, I don't know, you have to do a lot of uh, mental gymnastics to remember. Okay, I want to get back to the scene where this guy got harpooned or whatever. How do I get that there? But I think Lucas Pope very intentionally didn't want to make getting around the Oprah Din like easy. It's slightly arduous. It's a bit slow, but it yeah. really forces you to become intimate with it. And that's what absolutely, that, yeah. and that's what you want because you will get stuck. That's the nature of the game. If you don't like getting stuck, this is not the game for you. You just will. You have to. But when you're just yeah. trudging around, when you're revisiting old deaths, revisiting old memories, and you'll just notice something just because you're you're going to just spend so much time in this space. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like the, um, in a way, it's like the the Spencer Mansion in Resident Evil One, where getting like properly acquainted with the layout of the space you're in is a huge part of it as well. That like knowing the layout of the ship is another thing that you can use to figure out identities. If if you're watching a vignette of someone's death and you see someone else leaving the scene, if you know the ship, you know where they're going, you know what quarters they're going into. If they say someone's name and they're going in that direction, you can intuit, well, maybe they're going into that person's room or something, you know, you can work out. It's all information you can use, you know? Yeah, and, and just like, like there's so much of like I I've replayed this game a few times. This isn't a game that has exactly replayability. Like once you've solved yeah. everything, you know that's like that's the game over. But you know I like to kind of be in games I really like again. I just like to put it on. Mm-hmm. Oberdin is just one of those ultimate ones where I just I've revisited because I wanted to uh, you know just be in that game with its odd soundtrack with its whole vibe. I just want to do that, but also. I wanted to see, Kev, if I could solve it as efficiently as possible. I wanted to yeah. see when, you know, when the clue is available. Like, the game actually tells you, on the, on the big picture of all the crew, if their faces are slightly blurred, it means that you haven't um, seen the necessary information to kind of identify this person or their death. So the game, there's actually a lot of kind of um, safety nets that the game gives you to prevent yeah. you from getting too bogged down. But, you know, sometimes then a face becomes unblurred and you're just looking at, you're blinking at the screen going, I'm supposed to know who this person is now. I don't, I have no idea. Yeah. So I actually did a run through of this game just to see, uh, and just to see all the ways you can figure it out and when you can know this person. And it, the stuff I missed the first time, just I want to yeah. go into it just for a puzzle, but I never looked too closely at the, um, the, the crewman's bunks the first time I played where, they, yes. where they're, where they're sleeping. And that's yeah. a huge clue for anyone who wants to play it. Have a look at their yeah, bunks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we won't go into that any further, but that is yeah. massive. <laughs> and stuff like that um, just it was just so fun just to realize all the ways i could have because you can brute force this game if you want and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing sometimes the process of elimination yeah. is a tool you can use you know yeah you, you can you can brute force it as you get to sort of the narrow end of things 
but it's not so much an option at the start because of one sort of interesting mechanic that we haven't touched on yet. Yeah. Is that the game will only tell you if you've got things right when you have three right. Yeah, so you can't just start flicking through names. Um, oh, this guy is this is this guy. He's this guy. This guy. If you don't if you don't have three right in a row, the game won't tell you. Yeah, which makes it even more satisfying when when the game stops and it tells you that you've gotten three correct. You know, yeah. it means that you've been you know playing well long for actually quite a, a while. You know, yeah. <laughs> and it is massively satisfying. It just sort of stops for a second. You get that that music, you get that little um that card with the lines that fill in that <laughs> yeah, indicate yeah, how far yeah, along yeah. you are. Ooh, baby, there is nothing better. <laughs> And just to kind of um, explain it, how how the the game actually functions in terms of uh, uh, labeling these people by their names that you you go to, you have a, a vast list of phrases. So you have all the crew members' names, but you can also link that to he was stabbed, he was shot, he was exploded, he was burnt, and all, and all these things. And then you can say if it was by someone else or if it was by a beast if it was by whatever you know um i, I believe originally kev pope intended this game to be a, a, a tippy tappy typing like an old adventure game to actually yeah. type in um you know you want to type in like captain blah was killed by blah but apparently he just couldn't do it yeah i think the localization was a big part of it as well yeah i think there's um is it ars technica on the on youtube have a video where they interviewed him specifically about the challenge of localizing the game mm. because it is you know a deduction puzzle game where the solution is forming a sentence yeah and obviously sentence structures are going to vary wildly when you're changing languages and things so like the localization of this game must have been an nightmare. absolute nightmare because the game gives you a ton of phrases that you never have to use as well like i just just for example i don't think anyone ever gets electrocuted i don't think that's any way anyone died or maybe they do yeah, I'm, I'm keeping it I'm keeping it non-spoilery, but I'm just saying there is like a vast list of ways people can die at your disposal to kind of, you know, label people, but you don't use all of them, not at all. Yeah, and it's it's fairly forgiving about stuff as well. If someone gets speared, or, speared or spiked is uh, one speared, that, yeah. that can be quite interchangeable, which I, which I appreciate yeah. it. Or I think there's like knifed, stabbed or like slashed or whatever yes, will all yeah. get accepted, you know? Yeah, and the, the the one kind of one of the main negative things I would say about this game is the graphic style is is amazing. It's one for the ages. In fact, actually, just to talk about the the graphic style for a second. I actually played this game and I got so obsessed with it. I didn't want to stop playing because I absolutely loved it. Even though to anyone who's playing it now, I'd recommend you know putting it down for a while, chilling because this, when this game is finished first time, you'll never have the experience again. But actually, the art style gave me a huge migraine while I was playing it. <laughs> It's more really? my fault for playing it as I was playing it, just kind of obsessively and just not taking breaks. But the art style—it's—it it, I don't know how to describe it. Kev. It's very in terms of just I, I don't know—it it just ripped into my skull after a while, and it's one of the okay. worst headaches I've ever experienced while playing a game. But you know, now that that's I'm out loud, I could just not play the game. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I know you played it on the Switch. Were you playing it handheld a lot, or I was playing on the TV actually? If on I the remember. TV, okay. Yeah, even yeah. though it's a great handheld game, yeah, because of how passive it can be. But also, I was going to lead to us that the art style, as good as it, good as it is and as unique as it is, a couple of occasions fails to convey what exactly is happening. And it's so key, I think, to know exactly what you're seeing. And it's mainly when fire is involved. I can't tell. Yeah. Is this man on fire? What's, that, what's this kind of white kind of smudge here? Is it supposed to be flames? And replaying it, obviously, I knew everything. I, it was fine. But the first time, I think I stumbled over a couple of dissolutions uh, because I just couldn't exactly catch what's supposed to be happening to this guy, especially when, mild spoiler, some people die by supernatural means. What exact verb am I supposed to use or whatever, you know, to yeah. describe this supernatural way he's dying, you know, and, and the graphics aren't quite conveying it clearly of what's exactly supposed to be happening to him. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that. Um, I think that, you know, there's an argument to be made that the, the art style was... Uh, you know, obviously a very deliberate design choice that maybe sort of deliberately obfuscating that stuff was on purpose as well. And I'm not saying it was a, the right design choice, but I, I I can see a case to be made for that as well, you know? But I don't I don't want to I don't want to talk negative about it. It genuinely like genuinely is one of my favorite games. It's definitely one of my uh, I think we talked about before I, I I put it in my top five games of the last few years, like right up there with like Breath of the Wild and, and stuff like that. I just absolutely yeah. adore it. Like I played it last Halloween. I was like to Fiona, I think she was busy with college anyway, but I was like my girlfriend, I was just like, there's just this game. I know we're like, I think we had, I think we had movie night planned for Halloween, but it's like, there's this game and I wanted to play it. 
on Halloween <laughs> like last last year. So I'm just going to do that for about three hours because it only takes about three hours to replay. Yeah, yeah, and it was just it's just it's just a perfect vibe. It's just such a yeah. it's such a vibey game. And that Lucas Pope in general, like if you just I'm just going off papers, please. And Oberdin, he has such a distinct style, doesn't he? His games oh, yeah, have such absolutely. a specific feeling. They always begin with very kind of uh, official, like you're reading letters and it's always kind of, you know, yeah, kind of world building through like, you know, letters or, or newspapers first. And, and he composed the music as well, as well. And they have it has such a distinct feel. Yeah, that's one thing that's worth pointing out is that the soundtrack for both of these games <laughs> are absolutely excellent. There's this, these really silly earworms. I don't know. I yeah. don't know how to describe. It. They just convey just a certain feeling, and they're they're so intrinsic yeah. to the experience. It's like I can't like look at a picture of Oprah Din without just hearing the music. Yeah, it's um. I don't. Is it like some sort of somewhere between classical music and sea, sea shanties for the yeah, Oprah Din? I think that's yeah. spot on. I like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, Oprah Din was unfortunate in that it came out in 2018. In retrospect quite a good year for video games if you look at uh jeff Keighley's awards for excellence <laughs> aka the game awards um Oberdin, i think it won for like art direction but it lost out in the indie game of the year category to celeste oh i'll allow it celeste is brilliant yeah and it, it didn't get mad. it didn't get into the the regular game of the year category um no. celeste did didn't win winner obviously was God of war uh, God of War, yeah. yeah but um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey got a Game of the Year nomination and Return of the Oberdin didn't. But you know, Kev, us art wankers, we need things like that to complain about or, or, <laughs> or how will we sustain ourselves? Normally, I would agree with that, but this game is just so good that I just want to get it in front of as many pairs of eyes as possible, you know? <laughs> I, I completely agree. And if uh, I, you know what? I am a bigger fan of this than of Papers, Please. I think they're both masterpieces, like genuine masterpieces. I think they're if you're interested in video games, if you're interested in game design, they're must plays. But I also think they're fantastic games for people who might not be that into games because they're so kind of uh, easily easy to grasp. But they're also like perfect examples of um, the power of video games. What what can be conveyed through the medium? What can what can be felt through the medium? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, like when when two or more people start talking about video games for long enough, the phrase. Lunar narrative dissonance is probably going to come up. <laughs> I, I brought it's it an, up uh, when, I re- when I originally brought it up in this podcast. I was like, "This is it! I'm bringing up the most talked about kind of pseudo design philosophy of, of in video game history." But I had, to, I did, I think I did it for Grand Theft Auto or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Lunar narrative dissonance has to come up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And sort of the the, the, the prototypical example is always um, Uncharted. Yes, about how, you know. Lunar narrative dissonance for anyone who, who didn't hear Liam's explanation on that previous episode <laughs> is the idea of when the, the the sort of the story that the game is telling through its narrative and the story that it's telling through its gameplay are at odds with each other. So the example being um, Nathan Drake in Uncharted in the cutscenes is this sort of lovable scampish rogue, and then in the gameplay is just a psychopathic mass murderer. Yeah. So I would argue that the the Lucas Pope games then on the flip side are kind of ludo narrative consonants that every part of the gameplay serves the story that it's trying yeah. to sell in just such a really cohesive and comprehensive way. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's just so inspiring and just, yeah, they should be held up as, you know, what this medium can do. And he's just such an, a, an exciting designer. But what do you think of this kind of whole idea of the auteur or game designer? The auteur in general, we all, we love an auteur. But we games, do. I, gaming industry you know has such a kind of negative various negative shadows hung hung over it for like so many years yeah. in terms of many things i always think you know we should be celebrating everyone who works on games you know the art designers the programmers every yeah. single person rather than just the person at the top of the pile you know but i do think that the industry needs kind of unique voices more as well absolutely yeah and i think uh Lucas Pope is safe from the criticism that I'm about to bring up in that uh, like he he does it all himself. Hmm. So he he is kind of the one-man band here. But in a lot of cases, in video games, as you said, there's a lot of people all rowing in, putting in a ton of hard work. Um, often in, you know, conditions that aren't great. Yeah, You think of, like, someone like uh, David Cage being held up as an auteur. <laughs> 
And Sorry, I couldn't. I've recorded my, my my snark there. I couldn't help it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said about David Cage. Um, the least of which being that his games are total dog shit. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but like holding someone like Cage up as an auteur when obviously there's a ton of people working on those yeah. Quantic Dream games to make sure that they at least look good, if nothing else, and it is nothing else. That's was just. Uh, I just was the question I kind of want to ask is like, do you want to see more Lucas Popes? more people who are just given complete carte blanche to make whatever they want. Do you think that will lead to more interesting games? I think we just, yeah, I think short answer, yes. Longer answer, yeah, but we just need maybe to see more end of statement, just more everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> more, 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 yeah, more, more, like, video like, games. Yeah, like I think it's fair enough to say that like we've seen the open world thing, the AAA thing. It's, it's, it's been done. It's been done really well. Like, congratulations, everyone, bull of us, round of applause. Let's see something else, you know, let's do more. And if that comes from people like Lucas Pope, these visionaries just cranking out games on their own, fantastic. Or if it comes from AAA studios finally willing to take a punt and make something weird, like look at um, Resident Evil from last year, a bizarre game put out by a AAA studio and, you know, very worthwhile. I think we just need to see more people doing more weird shit. I completely agree with you. And I've been told a couple of times, I, I, not recently, but I've been told a couple of times that a lot of non-gamers listen to this podcast. And I oh. couldn't, I have to emphasize, I couldn't recommend these games more as just perfect, shiny examples of what games can do and also ones that are super easy to pick up. Even though I now realize, Kev, that you and I described Papers, Please as decidedly not fun a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, with Papers, Please, what I'll say is if you can get it on steam play it on uh any sort of pc or laptop nowadays we'll probably be able to play it it's worth a look for sure um if you don't have a computer to play it on but you are interested in it there is a short film that kind of tells a, a, a short narrative based on the game and it is excellent and it's on youtube so look that up now normally i wouldn't be um you know pointing away from the medium of video games in this podcast but you know <laughs> nah i'm only joking <laughs> i don't know what i was going for there yeah, and and one other thing I'd recommend to anyone who who's listened to this and is maybe interested, but maybe not interested in playing, but interested in hearing more, is that there is a panel talk recently gone up on YouTube, uh, and it is Lucas Pope and a guy called Mark Brown, who uh, runs a YouTube channel called Game Makers Toolkit that is kind of focused on game design philosophies and stuff. But it's it's those two guys and a couple of other people. Um, having a talk essentially about what makes a good detective game. Um, and it is well worth a look. It's really, really interesting stuff. What a, a positive note to sign off on, I think. Kev, I really mean it. Thanks for um, jumping on again. This was another like super fun episode. No problem, dude. Like I said, anytime. Um, 4 a.m. to talk about Crash 2. You know, Crash 2, Crash Bandicoot 2. What was that one called again? Cortex Strikes Back? Is I that think. third one? Okay. No, third one's called Warped. I think Crash yes. 2 is the best God one. I think Crash 2 is the best one and Crash 3 is the worst one. And I'm going to just leave that hot take for the end of the episode. Okay, <laughs> done. All right. Uh, Kev, cut. Thanks, <laughs> Kev, thanks so much for joining. My, my name is Liam Sheehan. I was joined by Kevin O'Carroll. Thanks so much for listening to Halo's Listening. And I hope to see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.